Welcome to Research Lives and Culture, the podcast that offers conversations about the research environment. Each week I interview someone who works or has previously worked in research. We discuss about the approach they have taken to navigate their career, the critical decisions they have made, the joys they have had in their work, and the challenges that they have faced. I ask questions about what a supportive research environment really looks like, and about the actions that we can take to help the research culture empower people to thrive. My name is Dr. Sandrine Sou. I am a coach, facilitator, and trainer for the research environment, and your host on this podcast. I am committed to ease the path to research careers by sharing stories of researchers' lives. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. You are now on the podcast Research Lives and Cultures. And this is me, Sandrine Soub. I am your host. And today I have the pleasure to have with me Lois Natukunda, who comes from Makerere University in Uganda. Welcome on the show, Lois. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Sandrine. So Lois is a lecturer in uh, human resource management and organizational behavior. And I first met Lois at the University of Sheffield when she was a PhD student in uh, the School of Management. And at the time, I was uh, running various workshops at the university and Lois attended some of these workshops. And then I didn't see Lois for many, many years. And thanks to LinkedIn, we got uh, back in touch with each other. Lois was uh, seeking uh, mentors for some researchers who are involved with uh, the NEMRA network. And she will be telling us a little bit more about this. She was looking for some mentors and I said, okay, well, I'll be quite interested to help in whatever way I can. So got involved. And then I started running a few sessions for the NEMRA network over the last few months. So it's been really wonderful to have ongoing conversation with Lois. I think probably since uh, last summer. So Lois, it's really, really exciting to have you on the show and to get to hear your side of the story. So can you give us a brief overview of your, your career so far? Thank you, Sandra, for giving me an opportunity to say my story. Everyone has a story, but probably not everybody gets an opportunity to say theirs. So thank you so much. Well, I have a Bachelor of Business Administration with management as a major. It's from Ndeje University in Uganda. And I also have a postgraduate diploma in human resource management from the Uganda Management Institute. My MBA is uh, from the University, Tanze University in Groningen in the Netherlands. And it was mainly focused on strategic management and administration. And then I also have a PhD again in management from the University of Sheffield, where we met years ago. Why did you decide to do a PhD? Because having done an MBA in Holland, you could have just gone and, and get a job straight away. What made you decide to undertake uh, a PhD? Well, after my undergraduate studies, I started working with the university as a teaching assistant. And uh, I think I got into a PhD by default because after getting my master's, 
the structure in Uganda is that you don't become a lecturer until you have a PhD. So somehow I got into doing a PhD because I was teaching, my job was teaching at a university. So doing a PhD abroad is not something that's really easy coming from Uganda. So what was your approach first to decide where to do a PhD? And then how did you navigate, you know, the, the funding of your PhD? Because obviously doing a PhD abroad is something that's very expensive. So what was your approach in making all of these decisions? Okay, so I, well, I naturally like exploring new places and culture. So this was one of my underlining reasons for looking for opportunities to study abroad. So when I was younger, I read a lot of books about and mostly bibliographies and stories outside Africa. So I always knew that there was a world out there for me to discover. But when I was older and thinking about a PhD, I knew about the importance of spreading out research network and teaching experience. So apart from a desire to experience the British land and people, I chose to do my PhD in the UK because I really wanted to extend my research network, my academic network, and also teaching experience. So I was looking for exposure, international network building, and well, teaching a wide cultural environment. I had learned that universities in the UK have staff and students from literally all over the world. So this was impressive for me. And so I, I really wanted to, to have this. But also, I have to say that it was hard work to actually achieve the, the desire. I spent hours and hours looking for admission and funding. And uh, I had a spreadsheet full of uh, communication I was making almost every week. And I kept ticking off things that are no longer working and those that needed follow up and putting many colors, red, green, purple with um, different meanings. It was hard work. But uh, basically what I did, I checked university websites for profiles of faculty with similar research interests as mine. And then I just reached out to them via email. I, I shared my research idea and inquired if they were happy to, to supervise me. The good thing is that most of them actually come back uh, to me and they were very supportive. And uh, I think I got opportunities for admission with over 90% of them. Uh, admission is uh, very easy. But then uh, our plans would be checked by unsuccessful applications for scholarship. That was the biggest hurdle. Uh, for, uh, and yet uh, a PhD in the UK is just not possible for an ordinary Ugandan like me to fund themselves. So I, I wouldn't go very far. So, But then, uh, like the saying goes, that never give up. So I just uh, continued knocking doors until I got a, a graduate teaching assistantship with the University of Sheffield at the Sheffield Management School. So, yeah, that was my, my journey. It, it was about resilience in looking for, I, I just wanted this opportunity I deeply wanted it. I deeply desired to study abroad for experience, for exposure, for networking. And, and then I also didn't give up when actually it was not coming to me easily. I pressed on. Yeah. 
What's really interesting in, in what you're saying is that you, you took a very methodical approach of just pushing, you know, contacting people, pushing under and, and seeing what's there, almost not making an assumption whether people will, will accept you or not, or whether there will be opportunities and just very systematically seeing what was possible. And that's very impressive. And in the end, what was really your experience of the, the PhD in Sheffield? I, I really had a very nice experience. Of course, there were some challenges, but I had a, a nice experience. Of course, from the beginning, securing the opportunity can be really life-changing. It comes with a sense of accomplishment uh, because it takes a lot of courage and hard work to write a convincing concept to boldly reach out to people and organizations. And it also included, of course, handling very many rejections. But I am aware that some people actually probably get it from the first or second attempt. Lois, this thing that you said about rejection is a really important one because many people could have thought, well, you know, these people, you know, there is no funding or I'm being rejected. People are not interested in my ideas. And this idea of resilience to actually create these opportunities. What was the sort of inner motivation or the, the maybe the support also that you may have had through your friends, family or, or anyone that sort of kept you going through that process of creating this opportunity? Well, I think usually the rejection is not in one sentence or, or in a very bad way, like, no, we don't like your, your concept or anything like that. It comes with a lot of feedback and explanation uh, why uh, a funder is not able to provide you with a scholarship. And uh, even if sometimes it just says, oh, it, it was a nice proposal, but because of many applications, we couldn't take you on, blah, blah, blah. When you get back to the people who have been supporting you to develop their concept, they can sometimes pick out the issues behind that. And uh, what actually helped me to push on is to reflect on uh, those un unsuccessful attempts and then try to make myself, my next application better so that I can maximize the chances. But also I was encouraged by uh, some of the people I was working with on the other side of the UK faculty that I would contact about my research, they would encourage me to remember that actually these scholarships are very competitive and they get very many applications. So I didn't need to take it really personal uh, about my application. It's just that they, they are just too many and the, the funder cannot take them all on. Yeah, so I think that was it. Learning from trying to make the, the application better, but also remembering that However good the application may be, there might be thousands of good applications and uh, I need to keep knocking doors. Yeah. What was the best part of doing a PhD in the UK for you? Because, well, I mean, again, the university where you were, the University of Sheffield has um, tons and tons of opportunities for PhD researchers to learn, to network and so on. But the time frame of a PhD is limited and making the most of all these opportunities is sometimes quite challenging. So in, in your case, what were really the, the highlights and the key things that you were able to, to do during your period as, as a PhD student? 
Okay, I'm not very sure about other cities in in the UK. I only visited a few and didn't live there. But living in Sheffield, I really found it a very a super international students friendly city. Really, uh, as an international student, you would not get lost in in the city. The community was very supportive, and uh, well, a PhD may come with a lot of stress. And you do not want to live in a place where the community is not supportive. So I think living in Sheffield was very good. Also, the fact that it was uh, very close to very nice countryside places like the Peak District, where you could be able to go and release the stress (laughs) of being a PhD student and also discover the history of the country. So I, I really loved that experience. But within the university, I think undertaking a PhD in the UK is, um, is, is very interesting, especially in the way the doctor development training program is structured. So the way the, the program is structured and designed is in, uh, in such a way as to develop you as an independent researcher. So apart from the support that we used to get to enhance our intellectual ability to do the research, produce and defend our thesis at the end, we were also given numerous training opportunities so we could develop our soft skills and abilities to be able to manage research well and engage in wider society. So this is how I got to meet you, Sandra, even though you are not from our school, but the university offered these uh, university-wide training opportunities for becoming better researchers, but also opportunities from other universities and conferences. So I found the doctor training program in the UK very, very helpful, very holistic in a manner. So after defending my thesis, I could uh, say, okay, I've gained that skill, that skill, that skill, besides doing research and writing the thesis. So if you're reflecting on all the opportunities that you had as a PhD student, what do you think was the most significant in terms of the way that you see your role now as an academic in Uganda? What do you think got you to think about your role as an academic for what you wanted to take back to your country in shaping you as a professional and as an academic? who felt that you could contribute building research capacity in your country? Okay, what really created the way of thinking for me were the discussions that we had with the the fellow PhD students, but also academics. So outside the normal PhD training, we had these reflections and then sharing experiences made me uh, think because then would realize and appreciate that we are different and we are coming from different backgrounds and we have different ambitions. So it it accelerated a question of, okay, I am a human being and there are expectations from society and all that, but what's so special about me? What are some of the abilities that I have? What are my, my motivations? What are the things that excite me? And where are the opportunities? Who can I work with? I reflected deeply about the uniqueness of me and what I can uh, 
contribute after appreciating that actually, even though we are many, we, we are also uh, individual personalities and we don't have to be exactly the same. Yeah, I like this idea because often it, it can feel quite overwhelming because when you think about the number of PhD graduates, say, well, what's so different about me? You know, everybody's got, you know, a PhD these days. Probably not everybody. Having a sense of power, that's some, often something that I talk about and almost not undermining our competencies and our power in the way we can contribute positively in, in the work context. So that, that's an important part. So what were the challenges as part of doing a PhD abroad? Because, you know, you were very, very far from home and in a country where you had not lived before. And at the same time, trying to make the most of the experience. And you had worked so hard in getting yourself to start a PhD. So lots of learning and lots of new, exciting things. But at the same time, it's not an easy journey. So what were for you the challenges that you had? And what did you do to move beyond these challenges to, to overcome them and uh, navigate your career in, in the best way that you could at the time? I think top on my list is winter. Dark and cold was really, really difficult. I had been in the Netherlands, but for one year, so that was the, the most difficult. I never got used to, to winter. I never, I didn't get used to it. But, but also adapting to a new environment was really a challenge. So, for example, even though Uganda is an English-speaking country, I just couldn't understand the accent of some people in Sheffield. And uh, I would hear people speak and I was wondering, are they really, really speaking English? It, it was hard. I can relate to that, Lois. I remember in the university, there was a store for people to collect stuff for the laboratory. And two of the men who were running the store had very, very strong Yorkshire accent. And I would never pick the, the phone in the lab when I knew they may be calling because I could not understand them. And I was always feeling very embarrassed about not understanding what they were saying. So completely understand you. <laughs> when it was uh, the physical interaction, you would try to see the body language and understand what they are saying. But on the phone, no, it was really hard. I had a friend from Nigeria who uh, encouraged me to watch TV so that I can get used to the accent. And I'm usually not a TV person, but this time I, I decided to watch news and things like that to be able to get used to the accent. Well, that might sound like minor challenge, but it actually was working on my psychology as thinking if I cannot understand what people are saying, how will I really manage? But that did take long and I quickly got used to, to the accent. But the other thing, the intellectual challenge is that I was not used to the whole idea of being critical in research and teaching. So coming from a culture with a huge power distance, <laughs> I, I was I, I thought that you, you don't go, you, you actually make sure that you go very slow questioning what those who are more powerful than you say. So if a teacher says something or a lecturer, I said something or an author of an article or a textbook, then you have to tread carefully if you're to try to 
think deep about their claims. And uh, maybe you, to be respectful, you take them on face value. So my supervisor who was British, but also familiar with this situation, she told me that my students, especially British students, will appear to be very critical of what I do and say, and that I should not take this personal, which was very good advice. But then I also had to make sure that I was not merely descriptive in my research. And then that took a lot of learning. And of course, even after four years of, from after my PhD, I am still learning. And uh, yeah, so I had to give special attention to developing my critical analysis uh, skills. Can I ask you, Louise, because that, that's a really important element. What advice would you give to academics uh, in the UK or other Western universities? When Because that's something that I've heard many times when people come from other countries where the relationship with authority, with established academic is very different. And learning to become critical as, as a researcher is part of what you're learning to do. And, you know, researchers who are just starting their PhD coming from overseas, I find that really challenging. So what advice would you give on both sides to academics who are recruiting students from overseas, who come from cultures where criticality is unestablished or expected as it is in the West, but also to PhD candidates coming from overseas who are encountering or are given permission to become critical. How do we navigate that space of inviting people towards criticality and learning to become critical ourselves? I think first for the academics, being aware of the issue is the first step. So you do not take it for granted that actually people look at things the, the same way. So I think awareness is a, is a very good thing. Like my professor was really aware. She had done a lot of work in Brazil and uh, some Portuguese-speaking country in South Africa, Mozambique. So she was uh, really aware of, of this issue and she, she quickly oriented me ab about it and she prepared me. So whenever we went into the supervisory meetings, she would Because I was expecting that when I go there, the one hour meeting, she and, and her co-supervisor would tell me what to do and, uh, you know, like dictate on the flow of my proposal and research. But then she told me that it's actually your study and we know you have the potential to do it. So we want what you want and what you think to be what we move forward, not what we think or our ideas and it's it's your opportunity so she took time to explain this to me even though if I think if she was dealing with a British student she would not bother to do it because they already know this so awareness for the academics is key because if someone has worked in Europe on alone and probably hasn't been exposed to other cultures They might uh, take it for granted and think that everybody thinks the same. But I think it's important to be aware of that and reassure the student 
So some, uh, sometimes I would feel like, oh, I'm stepping on the toes of my supervisors. And, and she would say, no, actually, that's what we like. You, you need to tell us. You're the one who is familiar with the African context and you are the expert. So tell us. That, that was really encouraging. And I think for the international students, there's a lot of help. There's a lot of published work in form of textbooks and uh, journal articles that talk about being critical and how to be critical. And uh, I think universities also offer workshops and seminars. So it doesn't come that easily. It takes a deliberate effort to actually learn and unlearn some things about being critical. So it's important to spare time and look for these opportunities and utilize them in the doctor training program, but also with colleagues or the books in the, li in the library and uh, maybe journal articles as well. Yeah. So is it something that you are now trying to do with your own students as part of your teaching so that uh, this level of criticality is just part of the normal curriculum in the way that teaching is done in Uganda? When I came back, it was one of the things that I thought I should uh, promote. I actually worked with two of my accountability group members from the University of Sheffield to write a little handbook in, in very simplistic terms for the Ugandan community, like the steps of why it is important, how to read critically, how to write critically, and the available resources that are there for self training. So we, we did a little handbook about this issue because I struggled a lot with it. It's very, very challenging. So, and I try to encourage my students about it, the ones I supervise for research and the ones that I teach to encourage them to appreciate its uh, benefit. So Lois, having now gone back to Uganda, what is really your career ambition now that you're, you're back home? And What is it like to go back? Because there will be some of your academic colleagues in your department and institution who didn't do a PhD overseas and may create certain assumptions on you having done a PhD abroad. And as a PhD graduate, full of enthusiasm and motivation and energy to create change in your own you know, institution, making things happen then when you're back can be perceived very differently. So what has it been like go going back and what do you want to achieve over the next few years in working back in Uganda? Okay, so earlier in the interview, you mentioned something and, and although you retracted it, you said now almost everyone has a PhD. <laughs> so in Uganda, I think studying abroad has been happening years and years and years. So there are very many people who have done their PhDs or masters abroad. And it's, uh, when you asked about how my colleagues see me on my return, it's, I don't know, I haven't uh, experienced it as something like extremely special because they, they've been used to people doing postgraduate studies uh, abroad. And so I, I, I didn't um, find it like something very unique or too special. But, well, actually, my ambition is about research. So I really want to make contribution to the research and development. 
and research capacity building approaches and frameworks. And not only in Uganda, but the entire continent of Africa, because I think there's a lot of room for improvement on how we teach, supervise, and examine research. I think we could revise for the better how we develop researchers. And related to this is research mentorship as well for the other career researchers in order for them to make significant contributions, not only in the higher institutions of of learning, but in in society generally. So we, we recently had a dialogue about a research agenda for a community of early career researchers in Uganda. And someone, an official, a top official from the Ministry of Education, she clearly stated that the only way they can make and implement ideal policies is if researchers do furnish them with relevant uh, relevant quality research output. And of course, this is understood by all stakeholders, and we must develop researchers who can deliver on the assignment if we are to really run our country well. So that, that's my ambition. I really want to see transformation and change in how we develop researchers and how we build capacity for research in, in our country and continent. One of the initiatives that you've been involved in is the, the NEMRA network. Could you tell us a little bit of how it got started and how you started being involved in this network? Okay, so NEMRA is the network for education and the multidisciplinary research Africa. It's an inter-university and inter-institutional network for postgraduate research students, academics, and generally others interested in research in Africa. So if, if you think about it, researchers and institutions in Uganda and Africa generally, they have more intellectual resources than they probably realize. And these resources are untapped. So we think that through inter-institutional networking, we can, through synergy, work towards a dream of a a brilliant network of uh, stakeholders that actually advance excellent research for society well-being. And so we are engaged in a lot of capacity building activities. We also do joint research projects as the inter-university teams. And so although the network is based in Uganda, we have participation from across the globe, really. And of course, we've been very privileged to have you participate by offering training, but also mentoring some of the NIMRA ladies. So we do appreciate your involvement. I've been involved in this network as a managing director for the last two and a half years since its inception in 2018. So I am in the evening time of my leadership there. And uh, it was a sort of an uncharted territory for me, really. I have made a lot of mistakes. Of course, I learned from them. Uh, it's a learning experience. But also the, the doctor training that we had on research leadership at the University of Sheffield Of course, they contributed to um, my ability to boldly step out to this challenge. And I I, I still constantly refer to my notes from the events that we had 
that uh, the Think Ahead program used to organize, uh, like the Springboard for Women. I think you still remember the grad school retreat that we had towards the end of our PhD. So these experiences helped me to boldly get into the leadership of this inter-university network, which I, I believe. Can I ask you, Lois, so, I mean, from attending courses where we talk about leadership, we mostly have conversations about it, to now being in a position through the, your work for NEMRA to actually making things happen. How do you think that over the last two and a half years of being involved in NEMRA, your leadership has changed? And what have you learned about your own leadership as a higher education professional? Where is your leadership at right now, based on these real-life experiences? Okay, it's one thing to actually get into leadership training and mentorship programs, but it's another to uh, actually implement the, the leadership. It's uh, it, uh, When you get the responsibility, then that's where the rubber meets the road, like they, they mentioned. So I'm at a point of actually analyzing uh, the experiences that I've had about the accomplishments of the network, but also the failures, what not as a, in a bad way, but the unachieved goals or the mistakes that we have had. So I'm at a point of, uh, like I mentioned, in September this year, it will be three years of this journey. So um, doing a lot of reflection and I, I think it will help me in my next journey, in my next leadership uh, or management assignment that I may get or if I'm to continue with NIMRA. At this point, it is still more of a, a reflective period. Can I push you a little bit more on that? What do you think you've really learned about yourself through getting the, the NEMRA to be really visible and out there. And the fact that I, I got involved with NEMRA and other people got involved in providing support for activities. What do you think that you learned about yourself in knowing what you can make happen for your research community? Okay, uh, maybe I haven't learned, but I've confirmed that I'm actually very task-oriented. <laughs> I, I tend to to be really, really pushy. We have to achieve the task. I'm very task-oriented and I'm learning uh, how to balance between the task orientation and the people orientation. So how to like teamwork and things like that. So um, I usually get more concerned, have we achieved rather than are we actually working together? What's the best way of uh, achieving a proper balance? Yeah, so I think that's where I am now about myself, learning about myself. If we are to get on the Belbin team roles, I am really, really more of a complete finisher of things. I want things finished. I get very, a bit uncomfortable with anything pending, which I think sometimes makes me compromise on things to do with teamwork and working with, with other people. If you're thinking about the big picture of research in Uganda, what do you think needs to happen to shift the research culture to enable academics to work better together, 
to create research opportunities when, you know, in reality, there is very little funding option. And the, through the work that you've done in EMRA, it's very much the bringing people together, but then going from bringing people together to really change the culture and really change the way people are able to undertake research. What, what is going to need to happen or what, what would you dream that, that happened for really proper, impactful change for research in Uganda and in beyond in Africa as well. Okay, Sandra, and the question about research culture in Uganda and Africa is a very complex one. <laughs> I don't think I have a clear answer to this question in my head right now, but it is something I'm still pondering about. So recently, the government of Uganda extended funding to Makerere uh, University where faculty are conducting local funded projects in teams. So maybe this is something that we need to evaluate to see what kind of challenges the grant scheme is addressing in terms of the research culture and how working together has been enhanced. But definitely this is a, a, a big research question. Maybe somebody should do a project <laughs> about it. Yeah, Absolutely. One question that I have is about the uh, the training that people have when they are PhD students in the UK or Europe or the US coming from Africa or countries from the global south. I'm asking that because when um, a few months before I left the University of Sheffield, uh, I had a conversation with a PhD student from chemistry from Nigeria, and he was interested in setting up um uh, a network for PhD students from Africa. And I convinced him to go beyond Africa and to create a network for researchers from the global south. And as part of the conversation that, that we, we were starting to have was the issue of how, when you're thinking about the training of PhD students in a lot of the doctoral training partnership and so on, the training is very much done from the point of view of we're training researchers within a, you know, a Western context. And in a way for me, when I started having this conversation with, with this group, I almost felt embarrassed that I had not really taken into consideration the leadership needs of, of researchers from the global South in terms of it's all very nice to become very good researchers. But then when people go back home, the context in which they have to undertake research is totally different from what they have in the UK. And in a way, getting people ready to what people may call accelerated leadership so that when they go back home, they've really been thinking about what it means to be a research leader and how to build research capacity. Because at the moment, I, I feel that we train a lot of PhD students, but maybe they're not prepared enough, or maybe they are, I don't know. But in a way, what do you think is maybe the missing link or something that you feel that all PhD students doing a PhD in the West really need to experience. And maybe you had these experiences yourself in Sheffield, but when you're working with colleagues who have done PhDs abroad, what do you think they really need to be able to be trained in or what they need to have experience to be able to be really of use when they go back home? This is a very, very good question, very important question. I think, first of all, the training is uh, really uh, thorough. But I think the key to being effective when we get back home is uh, 
creating collaborative activities between the institution in the UK and that of the doctoral students back home, if, if that kind of networking is not there. So, for example, the department could get in touch with the department where the doctoral student is coming from, and then they see what they can do together and uh, probably ask some, some input in the student's training so they, they work together. And so those trained abroad, they're, they're usually exposed to a lot of ideas for improving their home country, but they rarely get support to implement those ideas when they return. And I'm not only talking about financial support, but someone has been doing a PhD in the UK and they haven't done anything with their head of department. And when they return, they start to make suggestions about things and the head of department is not really understanding what they are saying. So I think during the, the training, if the institutions in the UK can find collaborative opportunities with institutions of the students back home so that they keep that linkage open and uh, find ways of working together, then the PhD graduate won't be disappointed when they get back because in most cases, disappointment is what happens and then they conform after a few years to the status quo and then in the end, their impact is really minimal or they have to work really, really hard to convince their institutions back home to take up all that, all the potential that they can actually do. I'm sure there are so many people who are trained and trained abroad, but the environment is not conducive for them to actually implement all the potential that they have. They have to work very hard to convince people or to actually implement what they would like to do, which I think if there was uh, support uh, from the institution where, you know, the training should not be solely by the UK institution. That period could be linked, the, the activities in the period could continually be linked with what's happening in the institution back home. That's what I can think of at, at the moment. Otherwise, the training is usually thorough. It's basically using a collaborative approach mm -hmm. throughout. It's like students coming from, let's say, Macquarie University, where there is an ongoing conversation between academics mm -hmm. from that department and the academic host mm -hmm. in the UK to be able to embed whatever research is taking place in the context within Macquarie mm -hmm. University or whatever well, other yeah. university. It feels that people just are really separate from their African institution once they are in, in the UK or in other universities where you, you don't have a link for several years with, with your own institution and then you go back and it's, yeah, I can see the frustration. I have a, um, a background in biological research and I think maybe for people from experimental sciences, people may go and work mm. on projects of interest to that academic, but is completely unrelated to any type of research that is possible, you know, back in their own country. And then what are their projects when they go back home? What, what is the type of work that can actually be done and, and of use? The way projects are designed, having a consideration of what type of project will be able to be something that the, the PhD graduate then kind of carry on as their own research portfolio once they go back home. I, I don't think that we really think about that so much 
And probably that's something that needs to be discussed more with PhD supervisors in the UK. Can I ask you what, what has been the most challenging for you go, moving back home and trying to establish your next step in your career? So when I was doing my PhD, I came back to Uganda very frequently. And I also did my fieldwork in Uganda. So culturally, I, I was not detached and uh, bearing in mind that I was born and raised here, so it was not difficult to, to get back in society. But within my career, I came back with a lot of ideas, just like what we've been talking about. Communicating these ideas and mobilizing people to rally behind them is not a straightforward endeavor. I think so far this is my, my biggest challenge looking at things and, and ideas and you, uh, I imagine that they could make our, our work easier and more effective, but then communicating this and creating a buy-in from others is uh, what is really challenging. Yeah. What would be the thing you would tell to your young <laughs> self if you were th going back in time? What would be the words of wisdom Having experienced all of this, and what would you tell yourself to ease your path up until now? If I became my young self again, I think I'd tell myself that failure is not the end of the world. And it's not a horrible, horrible fail. When I look back at my failures, the things that I attempted, some of them were deeply disappointing, but then now I realize that actually those are the moments that have made me who I am now. But in the moment, I was thinking that the world has come to an end. I will never amount to the kind of person I've dreamt to be. I am unlucky. All those negative thoughts that are not actually very true. So failure is not the end of the world it's can actually it's actually an uh, an opportunity to be shaped into a, a person and a, a person who I'm meant to be and it it shapes me to accomplish the purpose so i would be more encouraged if i were younger and some of those life dreams and things i would encourage myself and say okay let's see what's in this even though it doesn't look really nice Thank you, Lois. So to round off uh, our discussion, I'd like to ask you if you were talking to a young woman in Uganda or a young woman in Africa, thinking about undertaking, starting a PhD journey, and what would you tell to this young woman in terms of making the most of a PhD journey and maybe how she may need to consider her role and her responsibility to build research capacity uh, when she goes back to, to her country. And I'm, I'm particularly talking, visualizing a young woman in an African country where maybe the expectation placed on her are maybe not the expectation that she wants to have placed on her and the desire and the dreams, professional dreams, professional ambition Sometimes the expectations that others have of us are not necessarily what our dreams are. So what would you say to this young woman? And maybe some of these young women are now your students. 
What would be your best five tips or best five words of, of wisdom? My sister Kip says that your attitude is your altitude. So if you think high, you're likely to actually go that high. So everybody has potential to actually achieve more than they are thinking. So keep on doing it. If they've gotten the opportunities and maybe they're preparing to go, I would tell them do not stay in your room or around just your university, but explore the communities from your home country. It's usually an opportunity to maximize this time to understand the community, explore. In the UK, there's a, a program called HOST where some families take on international students for a weekend or a whole week to teach them about the British culture. When you're doing a PhD, you think, oh, I must maximize every moment to progress on my chapter or things like that. But actually, if you take on uh, something like that, like going for a host program and go to a, a British family to learn about culture or even explore the upcountry, the countryside, it's very important. And, and then I could also advise them to maximize the opportunities that are offered on the doctor development training programs and also conferences. These are not easy to get by if you come from Uganda like I do. It's, these are not very easy to uh, find. So it's an important that you grab all the opportunities that there in the, in the doctor training program and the keep the information very well for reference for the future. I think that the third thing that I would uh, tell them is for them to keep in touch with the institutions and community back home and consider collaborative activities. We've mentioned this. It's quite key because it helps when you return back for orientation back into the community and the institution, but also to continue progressing as part of that faculty. And then when it gets really tough in the middle of your PhD, just remember that it is still possible. You can look at those who have gone before you and made it and, and remember that the road was as hard as, as theirs. So keep keep the, the, the focus. Yeah, I think that's what I would encourage the PhD woman from Uganda or Africa exploring the opportunity in the UK. Thank you, Lois. Well, these are certainly, you know, very wise words. And I think that you are very much an inspiration for many of your students and many, many other young women in Uganda and in Africa about being very daring in your career. It's been a great pleasure interviewing you for this podcast, Lois. And I'm sure that we will have many other opportunities to, to work together and to have conversation. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Sandra, and for having me. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion I had with my guest. I'm very grateful that you've been listening to us. I hope that you will join me in the future podcast. I wish you a very good day. And if you want to contribute to the podcast, I'm very interested to hear from you as I'm always happy to, to invite some new interviewee on this podcast. So if you've got an interesting story about life in research and about the research environment, get in touch with me. 
at Sandrine at Development.com. Thank you.